our love for Jesus is to be of such forceful strength that even our best love for our spouse will actually be seen to look like total disregard or hatred in comparison. It's not that Jesus says, you know, if, if, if anybody doesn't do this, he's not going to be a very good disciple. That would be one thing, you know. No, he says, if anyone or anything and even your own life means more to you than I do, then you can't be my disciple. This weekend on the Songtime broadcast, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke as Alistair Begg takes us to chapter 14 and shows us the fine print of Jesus' call to discipleship, what it truly means to follow Jesus. But first, we're talking with Greg Gilbert, who has a new book that helps us understand the main book, how to truly hide God's Word in our hearts. The many voices are coming together for that one message. I'm your host, Adam Miller. You're listening to Songtime Radio. Our guest today is Greg Gilbert. He's written an amazing book. It's called The Epic Story of the Bible, How to Read and Understand God's Word. Epic being the the idea that there are themes that are carried out, these overarching themes that go from Genesis to Revelation. In fact, there is one primary author. It's the Holy Spirit who is giving us the Word of God. So where there's 66 books, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is all told from one vantage point, telling one ultimate story that we are meant to know about the the disclosure of who God is, his plan for salvation, and our hope for the future of his coming kingdom. Now, all of this is is told throughout the various pages of this excellent book by Greg Gilbert, where he explores several of those themes, talking about the theme of the presence of God, covenant, kingship, which is really important. But Greg, I think one of the themes that is really important for us to understand, especially when it comes to our relationship with the Old Testament and the New Testament, is this theme of sacrifice. Obviously, we understand the Jewish system in the Old Testament of sacrificing animals. Uh, Obviously, we cannot be saved through the sacrifice of animals. The blood of animals will not cover our sins. It's a temporary sacrifice, but it ultimately points to the cross and the, the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, why is the theme of sacrifice so important that at connecting those two Gospels, and how does it help us understand the overarching story of the Bible? Oh, it is, yeah, because as you as you read through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you know, the Pentateuch, you'll see that God is in various ways preparing his people for uh, the suffering servant to, to die in their place. So, you know, like Exodus 17, for instance, he teaches them that uh, sacrifice, the, set, the ultimate sacrifice, the one who takes the punishment for his people's sins, will be god himself now it's kind of hidden under there but it's the story where uh moses is told to strike the rock so that water slash life can come out and the little detail in there uh that we tend to read over way too fast is that when moses strikes the rock god has already said i will be there on the rock so so the rod of judgment is coming down on god and the result is that life comes out which then explains why in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul can refer to Christ as the rock that was with them in the wilderness. He's, he's making that connection in 1 Corinthians 10 and seeing that it was, it was God who was struck for his people's salvation, and that's Jesus. You know? So, yeah, it, it's so deep and so wonderful. And, and, and it's, again, it's, it's just worth doing the work to see those themes and fall in love with them uh, and know your Bible better. 
One of the things that I've I've come up against in teaching the Bible is that people kind of are rebuffed by the Old Testament. It seems so harsh. It seems like a yeah. completely different God, and it yeah. seems like a completely different character than the the Jesus we're so familiar with in the Gospels, or at least the the Sunday school version of the Jesus we're familiar with in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you're talking about sacrifice, it really does tie the deeper meanings of the Old Testament to the New Testament of what Christ actually accomplished on the cross. Yeah, it's true. I, you know, I mean, this is this is why, uh, you know, you'll you'll learn a lot about God, and you'll 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 see wonderful things about Him reading the Old Testament by yourself. You'll see a whole lot more if if you've got people around you helping you to get insight and helping you to see, you know, what's important, what's you know, what 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 are the major themes. So it's really important to read the Bible with other people and not just sort of not just sort of dive into it. Um, mm-hmm. You'll get a lot, but you'll miss a lot too if if you do that. Um, so yeah. And we see this this theme of salvation provided in, in the Old Testament. Uh, it, that's why so much of the New Testament is, is quoting the Old Testament. It, we need to have the two together. We can't just stake out our claim in the New Testament absolutely. as believers, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, yeah, the Old Testament is the Word of God. Um, you know, most I think probably most evangelical Christians in the world think of it as a kind of second-tier Word of God. Um, and some preachers even treat it like that. But it's it's not. It is the... It's what throws the New Testament into full relief. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like it would be like saying, I, you know, I only read the last four chapters of Lord of the Rings. <laughs> okay, well, you're missing so you're you're not only missing so much of the story, you're missing so much of the meaning of the last four chapters, mm-hmm. right? Um, you you've got to have you've got to have the rolling tide of the story behind it, so that those last four chapters or whatever have their full meaning in your heart. And if you've not done that, you're selling yourself short. I think that's where most people are hesitant to actually see the full epic story of the Bible is by getting into the Old Testament. We're, we're familiar with the New Testament. We like the epistles. Uh, we like the Gospels. Those stories resonate with us. It can be a lot harder to understand the context of where all of that is pulling from the Old Testament in some ways. Yeah, it's true. So you got to have some good, you got to have some good guides, you know, mm-hmm. that, that can help you. Uh, uh, you know, it, the the the, uh, the discipline that we're talking about here is is biblical theology. So if if you start a, a study of biblical theology, um, you're you're going to find some good guides. Graham Goldsworthy uh, is is one really good guide. He's got a, a book called According to Plan that helps you understand the whole story of the the Bible. This this book that we're talking about, Epic Story. It is biblical theology. That's what it's doing. Um, uh, it's trying to do it in a fun way, you know, with talking about mountains and that sort of thing. But but that's what it's doing. It's trying to teach you to stitch the whole story of the Bible together. We've been talking with Greg Gilbert, who is the author of his book, The Epic Story of the Bible, How to Read and Understand God's Word. There are a lot of books that are written in this uh, kind of genre, trying to help you understand how to study the Bible and how to be better students of the Word of God. Uh, but this one, I honestly commend because it does it so well in shaping and helping you understand the main themes of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you are a seasoned student of the Word or somebody who has always found it difficult to make sense of some of the harder portions of Scripture, this will be an excellent resource for you or for somebody that you love. Find out more information by giving us a call. It's 508 362 7070. Or you can head over to our website at songtime.com. 
Well, today we're continuing our study here in the Gospel of Luke, and as we're working our way through this series, looking at the various stories in this Gospel, we're seeing Jesus calling us to follow him. In chapter 9, we saw Jesus turning his face towards Jerusalem and essentially telling us this is the, the journey to the cross. I'm going to the cross, and if you want to follow me, you too must take up your cross daily and follow me. You must deny yourself. You must lay down your life. This is a very complex point of view because ultimately you and I cannot go to the cross. We cannot bear the price for our sins. That was something that Christ alone can do. So what does it mean for you and for me to take up our cross daily and follow Jesus? We find out a little bit more here in chapter 14. And to explain it, we turn now to Alistair Beck. When Jim Elliot was a student of Wheaton College, as he continued to chronicle his life as a young man at that point, he writes on one occasion in his diary, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Perhaps he'd even been reading the kind of statements that we find here in these final verses of Luke chapter 14, a series of quite striking, challenging statements which Jesus addresses to the crowds that were traveling with him. And it's quite striking, is it not, that Jesus is apparently not trying to build a large crowd. On a significant number of occasions, he turns and addresses an increasingly large gathering, and he says to them essentially this, I'm not sure that you folks are picking up on what it really means to become my follower. When he does that, on one occasion, the crowds begin to leave en masse until he reduces the numbers to 12, and then he looks each of his disciples in the eye, and he says to them, and what about you fellows? Do you want to leave as well? Not exactly what you would say is the contemporary strategy for church growth thinking. Jesus apparently is concerned to do the reverse. Now, why is that? Well, it's because he's not really interested in spectators. He's looking for recruits. Now, we've said before that no one could ever accuse Jesus of soft-selling things, of putting the tough parts of what it means to be meant to be a Christian somehow or another in the small print, burying it uh, at the back of his brochure, as it were. Now, that's the kind of thing that the devil does when he's recruiting people. Having signed up, they discover when they read the small print that they're actually being introduced to death and to bondage and to pain. Jesus puts it right at the very top of the list. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, and his brothers and his sisters, and even his own life, he flat out can't be my disciple. Well, some of the people were standing there with their wives. Some of them had brought their children along. They loved their children. Indeed, the very reason they had brought their children was because they loved them so much, and they wanted them to hear this Jesus and perhaps become a follower of Jesus. What he's saying is this, that our love for Jesus is to be of such forceful strength that even our best love for our spouse or our earnest longing for our children will actually be seen to look like total disregard or hatred in comparison. If you've got a girlfriend that can prevent you from being a disciple of Jesus, you haven't begun to understand. If you've got a job that can keep you from undying commitment to Jesus, your job means too much to you. If you have a member of your family who so consumes your emotions, then, loved ones, what Jesus is saying is, you're calling in question whether you can really be a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus says, you know, if, if, if anybody doesn't do this, he's not going to be a very good disciple. That would be one thing, you know. If he says, you know, you're going to be marginal. No, he says, if anyone or anything, and even your own life, means more to you than I do, then you can't be my disciple. 
How different is this from the average way in which we suggest that people might become the followers of Jesus Christ? I can tell by some of your faces even now. You're, you're sort of recoiling as if somehow or another an air conditioner was blowing on you and it's just blowing you back a little bit. You're saying, what is this? Well, yes, this is the kindest shepherd who ever lived speaking. Do you love your life more than you love Christ? Unless you're prepared to actually carry your own cross, verse 27, you can't be my disciple either. When we study this in the reverse, in 9 and 23 of, of Luke, we recognize then that this is an expression of self-denial. This is not something that is going to be dealt with in a moment of fantastic devotion, where we have now determined that we're going to take up our cross and we'll follow Jesus. And we make a note in our journal that on such and such a day in such and such a month, I became a cross-carrying disciple. No, actually what Jesus says in 9 is, take up your cross every day. I don't know about you, but I find that very hard. Unless you're loyal to Jesus above everyone and everything else, you can't be his disciple. Unless you're prepared to take your cross, cannot be his disciple. And then in verse 33, in the same way any of you who doesn't give up everything cannot be my disciple. Now, we read this stuff and most of us are saying that pretty well clears out the whole building as far as I can make out as of right now. And that's what it's supposed to do, to shake us out of a kind of spurious, ineffectual form of Christianity that is frankly very unappealing to people who want to give their lives for something that counts. That's why Jesus speaks in these categorical terms. Unless you give up everything. Well, what does everything mean? Your money, your stuff, your family, everything that your heart clings to that gives you significance and gives you security. He said, I want you to give all that up. In fact, if you don't, you can't be my disciple. See how radical this is? And that's why he gives these two little pictures of counting the cost. He said, I want you to count the cost. I don't want you just to wander willy-nilly into my track, get caught up in the thing. Think about it. He said, if one of you was going to build a tower, you'd sit down and do the cost estimates, wouldn't you? Otherwise, you look really dumb when you've only got enough money to build the foundation, and then it just sits there looking ridiculous, and everybody said, he started, but he couldn't finish. Or if you're a king and you're going to war and you know that the odds are stacked against you, don't you sit down and figure out, is it possible for us to win this war? And if not, shouldn't we take some intervention now rather than face annihilation then? He says, you understand that kind of thing. He said, well, then apply the same kind of logic to considering what it means to follow me. So Jesus says, listen, guys, don't just raise your hand, you know, and say, I'm in. Sit down and think about what I'm saying. I may ask you, he says, to pay the ultimate price. How many of you read Shadow of the Almighty? Jimmy Elliott and his friends had gone down into the heart of uh, Ecuador's rainforest and committing themselves and all their carefully laid plans to him who had so unmistakably brought them thus far, they waited for the Aucas. And before 4.30 that afternoon, the quiet waters of the Kareri River flowed over the bodies of the five men, slain by the men they had come to win for Christ, whose banner they had borne. The world called it a nightmare of tragedy. The world did not recognize the truth of the second clause in Jim Elliot's credo, written seven years earlier. He's no fool who gives what he can't keep to gain what he can't lose. Let's pray together. We may not know and we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us that he hung and suffered there. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that in speaking in this way, you're not calling people to a level of life that you yourself would not live, to face a death that you would be unprepared to die to discover the path of obedience that you were unprepared to walk, and to enter into all of the joy of resurrection, which you were then to share. Stir up our hearts by way of pure remembrance tonight, and as we marvel at the immensity of your love, draw us to Christ and afresh to Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.
what does Jesus mean here when he tells us that we have to detach ourselves from every human relationship and devote ourselves solely to him, just him in our lives and no one else, and by doing so, we will inherit the kingdom of God. What does that all mean? Is Jesus being hyperbolic? Is he just using really uh, harsh language to make a point? And, and if so, what is that point? Well, it seems that Jesus is actually calling us to do something that he has challenged his followers to do throughout even the Old Testament. What comes to mind is the story of Abraham, where Jesus or God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain. And Abraham went through that process, and in the process of of taking Isaac, his only son, and, and sacrificing him to God, what we find is that he's able to keep Isaac. God provides a ram in the thicket, and Tozer says this in his book called The, the Pursuit of God, the second chapter, which the title of this should really speak for itself, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. What he says is that Abraham, in offering his son, he never lost his son. He got to keep his son. God provided the ram in the thicket. But what was at the core of that was that that Isaac would no longer rule and reign in in uh, Abraham's heart. That is the key. That at the very core of us and everything that we have, that Christ alone will rule over us, and that we will not be uh, swayed or moved or or driven by everything else in this life, but Christ and his kingdom would be the sole source of our devotion and our mind. And in doing that, we are not actually uh, causing harm on those that we love. In fact, by loving Christ first, we are demonstrating true love to those around us because that is what Christ teaches us. He is love. God is love. So by seeking him, We are loving our neighbors. In fact, we can see this even in the context of taking up our cross. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And when he talks about husbands and wives, what does he tell them? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He gave himself for her. And wives, honor your husband as though you're honoring Christ. He is centering even marriage on the cross. That if we keep our focus on Jesus, if we love things in their proper order, loving Jesus first and foremost above all things, we won't find ourselves completely absorbed in him so that we have nothing left for others. In fact, by focusing on Jesus, we will be able to genuinely and honestly and earnestly love others as he has loved us. But it does require that full devotion. It does require that full focus on Jesus to take our eyes off of everything else and to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. I hope that this encourages you, and I hope it challenges you as well to grow in grace so that you won't groan in disgrace. If we have been able to bless you, please be a blessing to us in return. You can write to us at Songtime Radio, PO Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or you can give us a call. It's 508-362-7070. You can also head over to our website at songtime.com or look us up on social media. On behalf of everyone here at Songtime, we want to thank you for listening. From Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller with our theme verse, Luke 14, 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 